This is Rachel, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org slash youngadults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Okay, John seven fifty three, and I'll be starting now. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been called in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote it on the ground. And when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, it is a pleasure to be with you all again. Uh, there's a lot of new faces here, so I'll just quickly introduce myself. I am Caesar. I'm the Young Adult Director here, and it is a beautiful pleasure uh, to be with you all. Uh, some of you know who have been with us for a while. Rachel and I were not able to be here last week. We were sick. I don't know if it was COVID. I don't know what it was. I just know that we shouldn't have left the house, so we didn't. Um, and the unfortunate part is that we weren't able to ring in the New Year with you, be at the prayer and worship night, but kindly, Caleb, uh, FaceTime me in, so I was able to, uh, from the comfort of my bed, oh, well, no, couch, we were, I was able to worship alongside as much as I possibly could, right? I mean, like I wasn't here, but I was able to sing along and watch the Holy Spirit move in your lives. I, it was, if anything, it was evident that the Holy Spirit was present last week moving in the lives of his people. So I'm excited to be back with you all, and we're going to be in the book of John, so like you all have them ready, open. Um, we're going to spend a little time going through a little uh, it's not, I mean, it's a sermon, but it's a little Bible study-esque uh, right off the top. Because if you look at the top of your Bibles, I don't know if you have this, but uh, you'll notice that this is in kind of like in brackets. And you'll see that it says something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verses 53 to 811. Y'all have that? Yeah, cool. Because it's in most modern translations, whether it's the ESV, the CSB, the NIV, the whatever it be, like it's, it's, it's going to be there. Um, and it's important for us to address this little tidbit here before we dive into the meat of the message, um, because we need to know how to handle things like this. Um, a lot of young adults and, and, a, and a lot of people who aren't Christians uh, look to passages like this to say, like, you can't even trust in the very things that you read. So why do you follow a God that is made up? Because the text itself isn't even even real. It isn't even valid. But as us, as Christians, as believers, as disciples of Jesus, as students of God's word, we need to develop a confidence in the things that we're reading and knowing that this is truly God's word. Because if it is God's word, then it will transform our hearts. So let's just quickly understand what is happening when it puts these things in brackets. So almost all scholars, it doesn't matter where they fall, all scholars will agree on one thing. This passage was definitely, almost 100% definitely not in the original manuscript for the Gospel of John. 
Okay, now over the centuries, one of the big questions that Bible scholars have to have is how do we know that this translation, the Bible that you hold in your hand, the Bible that you may read sometimes on your iPad or on your iPhone or your Android, God forbid, but if you do, that's where you have it. <clears throat> how do we know that it's as accurate as possible to the original writings? And the only way to know that is if you get manuscripts or original writings as close as possible to when it was originally written, spanning over centuries now, this is where you might hear things like Masoretic texts or Qumran scrolls or the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's, uh, these are manuscripts of, original, of the Bible in its original form because it was, it was written by hand. It was oral tradition. We said it to each other. The early church spoke it, but they also read the original letters to one another. And if you have those, you're able to determine if what you have currently in front of you is accurate to the original text. Now, there's three ways to look at what we ha- how, how to handle this. There's three ways, but before I do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share you what my view is, but I want to give this disclaimer. This is on you, okay? Like, it doesn't matter what my opinion is, and it doesn't matter what the scholars say. Like, you need to go after this, and you need to ask God, and you need to ask the Holy Spirit, what is true? Because your salvation isn't contingent on me, and it's not contingent on whether or not you believe this text to be true or not, but your walk with God is contingent on God alone, not on Caesar and not any other scholar, Okay? Can we do that? Cool. So there's three different ways. The, the positive way. The positive way is you read this text and the scholars who fall in this text, they, it falls in the understanding of uh, like Old Testament Apocrypha. If, if you've ever opened up a Catholic Bible, you'll know there are these like different books that you've never seen before and they're like the Maccabees and the Estras and the this, that. And those books of the Bible are not considered canon. They're not what we have in our uh, Protestant Bibles. But what, they do, but what they do have and what they are is they're pieces of truth or pieces of history that doesn't disagree with any other theological points made in the Old Testament. So you're saying it's okay. It's valid. We don't have to worry about it. The negative side of it, there are scholars who say this passage, passages like this, have no business being read in the church. It shouldn't be in your Bibles. You shouldn't have it in your Bible studies. You shouldn't read it. It's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. No one has any business having this. Let's get rid of it. Now, where I personally fall is in the neutral positive, which is kind of ironic, right? Like neutral is meaning neither, but it leans a little bit more on the positive side. And so what, what this usually means is this. I can agree. There, this is not in the original manuscripts. I, I can't argue with that, right? There are people who are way above my pay grade who has been spending a lot more years uh, in school reading these things in the original form. I get it. It's not in the original text. But what the th- I have to remember is Old Testament books of the Bible— And I don't want to rock anybody's faith here. Uh, You know how like people say the first five books are written by Moses, right? If you get to the part where Moses dies, it says that these things happened after Moses died with his body. Who do you think wrote that? Well, it wasn't Moses coming back from the dead and being like, oh, I got to make sure they know because my people need to know. There's no cliffhangers in the Bible. No, somebody who was inspired by the Holy Spirit came and updated the book so that they would know this is what happened to the body of Moses after he passed away. It's no different than what this passage is like because for 1,300 years, the the early church, the New Testament church, have been using this text to edify and use to guide God's people. So for 1,300 years, the church has had no problem using this in the uh, the the, the daily life of a Christian. 
But ultimately, the way I've looked at this passage is uh, what I like to term, call a text on probation. What does that mean? Anybody who's been on probation, if you know anything, they're not allowed to hold certain authoritative places, right? If you've gone to jail, you can't do certain things. Um, this is kind of what it looks like with this text. What that means is this text, I would never use to make any doctrinal statements. I'm not gonna make any big theological claims. There, I'm not gonna write a book on this passage and, and base my whole salvation on it. No, but what it is helpful for is being another piece of information that helps me see Jesus just as clearly as he is throughout the rest of the Gospels. There's nothing in this passage that shows anything about Jesus that is not already stated in abundantly clear ways throughout the rest of the four Gospel accounts. Cool, we're done, we're done. Now we get to the, the, the meat of the text. So tonight, as we see this as a valid piece of Scripture, we're going to see Jesus address a topic that Jesus talked about throughout a lot of his earthly ministry. It's going to talk about, he's going to answer the question, how does Jesus handle our sin? Anybody nervous yet? Cool. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, anybody here have siblings? Raise your hands. Oh, that's a lot of siblings. Uh, anybody fight with your siblings? Uh, fist fight? Anybody? Okay, yeah. Okay, maybe not fist fight. Like, no one's like du duking it out, but you're, okay, maybe you do. Uh, anybody here, the older sibling? The older sibling. Okay, so... Now, how many of you have had the experience where you're like maybe slap boxing, you're hitting each other, or you meant to like show them who's boss, but you don't want like to get in trouble. So like you try to hit them, but not too hard. Um, but then you do, like you do hit them too hard. And then you see their face go from understanding, this hurts. I'm going to cry. Mom and dad are going to come. You're going to get punished. So you have about 0.03 seconds to grab your sibling, hold their mouth shut, and whisper in their ear and kind of like caress their hair. Like, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. You're okay. You're okay. I won't. Don't call mom and dad. You can play on the Xbox. I promise. And no, no, it's fine. No, no. I won't even play this weekend. You can play with my Pokemon cards. It's okay. You're okay. Maybe anybody? Anybody? That's... That's been me. All right, I'm the oldest of three boys. Oh. Hey, yo. Okay, that was fun. <laughs> the message can begin, I guess. Yeah. Um, let's, let's bring this back. Here's the thing. You, you know as you've hit your sibling that you're about to get in trouble. And you, this is wild. What is going on? Lord, am I wrong? Like, I don't even know. Like, like I, <laughs> I've never had this happen before. Um... You know you've done something wrong and you deserve to get punished, but you want to get out of it, right? So you try to convince your sibling to simply forgive and forget, right? That's what you're hoping will happen. And for many of us, we play this out with Jesus in the exact same way. We'll commit a sin and, and, we, and we don't want to get punished because we, we've heard it's bad. We assume that as soon as you Get, as soon as you sin, you deserve hell. And, and, and so you, you're like, that's pretty, that sounds pretty bad. Like, like fire forever, that sounds pretty bad. So, so God, can you, um, I, I, I'll reason with you. I, I won't do it again. Just can you forgive and forget? Right, because what is sin? Right, simply put, sin is any time that any action or thought is done by a human that breaks God's moral law. So, so whenever someone has said that you have sinned, you've broken God's law. But if you're always just hoping that Jesus will just forgive and forget, you'll spend today and tomorrow and every day after never knowing where you stand with him. Will he punish you or will he set you free? And that's a pretty horrid relationship to be in, right? It's not just Jesus, but frankly, anybody to never know whether you're in good standing with them. 
But there's a thing that's true about humans. It's we've been hardwired, right, to when you see the rules get broken, someone's got to pay for that, right? Right, like, like I think we can all genuinely, generally agree, whether you're here and you're a disciple of Jesus or you're here and you don't really believe in Jesus, like, like you know when the rules are broken, someone's got to pay for those rules. Like anybody who's seen an episode of Law and Order, right, you never walk away from the episode thinking, oh my gosh, we probably went too hard on that guy. <laughs> like it wasn't that bad. He just killed a couple people. Like let him go. Like, like he didn't, like if he was really bad, he wouldn't have stabbed a guy just 16 times in the back. He would have done it in the front too, like really let him see it. Like he's like, no, no, like no one thinks that. Like no one thinks, oh yeah, that guy's deep down a really just a good person, really bad day. Bad day, uh, bad time, just, just going through a lot of things. Just let him go. No, no one thinks that. You watch the episode and all you think is that person deserves it. Give him life. Man, give him the death sentence if you want, but justice must be served. And justice is what we desire on a day-to-day basis, except when it comes to you and me, right? So how does Jesus then handle our sin? Will he just look the other way and say, it's okay, you're fine? Or is he gonna uphold the law and punish? This is where we find ourselves tonight in this text. We find Jesus here right in the beginning. They, each, each person went to their own house, it says. And in verse one, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. We find Jesus here. He's, it's after the Feast of Booths. A couple weeks ago, we went through chapter seven. He's told the people that he's living water. The feast ends. People go home. He goes to Mount of Olives, which is about one or two miles away from Jerusalem. And he comes back bright and early and he's teaching in the temple. And who's there with him in the temple? It says everyone, right? All the people, except here it really means every man was in the temple because only men could be students of the rabbi. So women wouldn't be here. They probably were in the living quarters, cleaning the home or doing something to that degree. We're not making any comments about what this would look like. I'm just saying this is what happened. Um, and this observation of only men being in the temple will be important in just a moment. So there are hundreds of men here in the temple coming to see this man who's caused quite a ruckus at the temple just a couple days before. They've come to see, is this man the Christ? Is he the savior? Is he Jesus? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And so people are coming in droves to see this man who's made some audacious statements in the, in the days prior. And then as Jesus is teaching, uh, the scribes, it says here in verse two, the scribes and the Pharisees show up. And they bring this woman who's accused of committing adultery and they place her before Jesus and they make the statement, this woman deserves to die because this law tells us that we're supposed to do it. Jesus, do you agree? Now, before we move on and kind of talk about this text, we have to identify just some major players here, right? We know who Jesus is. We've heard about Jesus. We've seen, we've been reading about him. Uh, We've seen the Pharisees multiple times. What are the Pharisees? Pharisees are the teachers of the temple. They're the people who... We're focused on personal piety, presentation of holiness, but all of them are nothing but what Jesus calls whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. And then you hear about the scribes. Now the scribes are, you might hear uh, in our modern terms, someone who writes things down. That's not what it is. In the times of Jesus, a scribe was someone who was a theological lawyer. So they were the ones who, if someone had broken the law or they needed guidance on punishment, they went to the scribes and they would know what to do according to the law of Moses. So it's not a complete surprise that they're here because this woman that we're about to read about tonight is essentially being put on trial at the, tape, at the temple. Now, as you re- have read this text, and we've read it together now once, and now we're doing it again, are any of you feeling any compassion for this woman? 
Okay, some are saying yes, some are saying no. You might think, so I personally, yes, I read this multiple times as I was getting ready to preach this, and every single time I read it, I was absolutely filled with compassion for this woman. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not gonna stand here and be like, hey, adultery's not that bad, don't worry about it. If you cheated, it's okay. There's another guy, there's another lady out there for you, don't worry about it. No, that's not what I'm saying. Adultery is wrong, and ironically, it's one of the few, st- a few things in this world, whether you're a Christian or not, that we all agree with. Like, if you don't, if you don't wanna be with the person, just don't. <laughs> You know, like you don't got to cheat on them and not hide about, and lie about it. Just, just break up with them. Like just end it, get divorced. You know, like, why would you have to go through all these things? And, and I want to be respectful here of some of you here who, who may have a family history where adultery is part of your family line. And I want to say, listen, I, I get that. And you, and you might be reading this and thinking, this, this lady does deserve to die. Just, like serve justice here. But the, the reality is the way that this is being written out and we'll fill the details in together. This is not justice. What's about to happen to this woman is not justice. Because here's the thing. When it says that this woman was caught in adultery, the way that the Greek is written out, it's not like she committed adultery, got to go home, clean herself off, tell a couple of girlfriends, like, I just had the hottest this. But like, and then this friend told her this friend, and then someone should tell that one. And then the, somehow some dude found out about it, and they told the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were like, we got to go get her. She's in trouble now. And they went to go get her. no. I wish it was that simple. When they say she was caught in the act of adultery, I don't want to get more graphic than this. She was caught in the very act. (laughs) Of adultery. Okay. There is nothing more vulnerable than that moment. Like, if you feel weird, someone walking in on you when you're on the toilet, this is worse. Like, this is absolutely worse. And so and to, and to just, just think about how this woman is feeling. She is not clothed, and then a group of men break through the door, and they tell her, we're taking you to the temple. There's a lot going on, right? Like, there's clearly a lot going on. And so these men are holy men, so they're not going to touch her as she's naked. So, and they're not going to give her a lot of time, though, because she's in trouble, and they want to sentence her. So they're not going to give her a lot of time to necessarily get dressed, but maybe get dressed enough to not just show her, her naked parts. But this woman is now scantily dressed. And now there's a couple of miles between the living quarters and the temple in Jerusalem. So this woman is now being dragged through the streets, half naked, being exposed to everyone in, in, in society. So it could have been her friends. It could have been people from the temple. It could have been her family members. This woman, even if she walks away with her life, is now forever known as the woman who is dragged to the streets like an animal. A social pariah in the making. And then they drag her through the streets. And in verse 3, it says they threw her in the midst now, it's not just like they like, placed her there kindly. They broke through the temple. They went straight to Jesus. They threw him before him. And now hundreds of men have all their eyes, bless you, have hundreds of eyes looking at this woman in disdain and disgust because they know the only reason why she would be there is because she is about to lose her life. And then they go to Jesus and they say, listen, we want justice. And part of you might be reading this and thinking, yeah, like I want justice here too, but, but this isn't it. And if it doesn't get worse, which it's about to, the lawyers of the law, when they say here, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. You know what the crazy thing is? They were wrong. They were wrong. 
this is not the time to be wrong. You're about to kill somebody. You don't go like, mm, I'm like 50% chair, they're like guilty, let's kill them. Like, no, that's not what you want to be wrong about. This woman's life hangs in that hangs in the balance, there we go, hangs in the balance. The Mosaic law actually says in Leviticus 20.10 that both the man and the woman who are caught in adultery are to be put to death. And that stoning isn't even the prescribed sentencing. It just happens to be the most painful and endless uh, death sentence of all. Now, where's the man in this? Nowhere, it's just the woman. And did you notice that the woman doesn't even have a name? How is she identified as? The woman caught in adultery. The only form of identification this woman has is her sin. She is robbed of every ounce of human dignity because they don't see her as human. They see her by her sin. And they use her as some object here. And the only reason this woman has been brought in is not because she's just broken the law, but because they're hoping to catch Jesus breaking the law. Because they know who Jesus is. Who is Jesus in the last, uh, the last eight chapters that we've been reading about? Jesus has a reputation, doesn't he? Jesus is the man who sits with sinners. Jesus is the one who forgives sins. Jesus is the one who associates himself with tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus is the one who touches the, the diseased and the unloved. Jesus is the one who identifies more with the widow and the orphan than with the rich and the powerful. But as you're reading this text, I don't know if you're starting to feel this angst thinking, is this going to go well? Like, we want justice, but I'm not quite sure, like, I can trust anybody in this story. Because, yes, the woman has broken the law. Anybody who reads this can say that. Anybody can, can read this and agree. She has broken the law. But any person who's supposed to uphold the law here cannot be trusted. And you don't just need to read this text to feel this angst. Look at the world today. Who can we trust? Our government? The officers of the law, government agencies, our families. All these people are providing false and evil sentencing. And you know who pays the price? You and me and every person out there. But before we cast any judgment on, on these pack of wolves that we've just read about, and before we cast any judgment on the world as if though we're okay, do you know the number one place where, where injustice happens? It's in our places of worship, isn't it? Because when someone's sin is exposed or when you confess your sin, this should be the safest place. I believe that. Scripture says that Jesus intends for it. That is what it was meant to be. But what it comes up in our churches more often than not is that we sentence each other in our hearts and say, you better not show up next week. This woman has been put on trial and there's no one to defend her. She's alone, the only woman among men caught in her brokenness, embarrassed by society, ridiculed in the temple, and now there's this mock trial, this fake trial, when she's already sentenced to her death. What's being abundantly made clear here is that we need a perfect judge. We need somebody who's gonna delve out justice because nobody here is able to do it. Where can we find this judge? And so they ask Jesus, all right, you're friends with sinners, Jesus. Let's see how you handle this. So what do they do? What does Jesus do? He doesn't say anything, does he? Instead, he begins to do this weird thing where he gets on the ground and he starts writing something on the ground with his finger and many scholars and readers uh, speculate what Jesus was writing, but it doesn't matter. Actually, 
the fact that he was writing is what is matters. We don't know what the message was, but it was important that he was writing on the ground, and you'll see a little bit later why. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees become impatient. They demand an answer. They're like, listen, we're just trying to get on with this. So like, can we just sentence her and go kill her? Can we all do that now? And what does he say? It's a very famous line. Let him or let anyone who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he goes back to writing on the ground like he just didn't just do the biggest mic drop of, the li- like, of her entire life. And then everyone leaves, right? Everyone just suddenly leaves. Like, I don't know if you're reading this and you're like, hold on. That's it? He says this one-liner and everyone's like, all right, I'm out. Like, am I missing something? Are we missing something? You see, that when the Pharisees brought this woman and the scribes brought this woman to Jesus, they had no idea what they got themselves into because they don't know who really Jesus is. Again, see, the words that says here, the Greek words that Jesus says that he was writing on the ground, that verbiage of writing on the ground is the exact same verbiage that is found in Exodus 31, 18. Exodus is the second book of the, of, the, of the Old Testament, the second book of the Bible. And in Exodus 31, we find that God is giving Moses the law that he desires for God's people to follow, a law that was meant to preserve his people. And then Exodus 31, 18 says that God gave Moses these two tablets. I don't know if you've all seen the Prince of Egypt, but um, it, they, this, these two tablets broken off from the mountainside and God writes the commands of, of his people on on there with his very finger. So what John is saying here is when the scribes and the Pharisees came to challenge Jesus about the legality of the law of God, they were speaking to the one who originally wrote it. They ironically picked the perfect person to be the judge in this case. They thought Jesus was the worst person they could pick and they could kill him. He's actually the only person that should be dictating this case. And then when they demand Jesus for justice, he says to them, let the first person without sin be the first person to throw a stone at her. Now, many people have taken this term completely out of context because if you read this text, what people normally say is, don't you ever tell me anything ever again. You can't tell me anything. Are you without sin? I know what you did last week. So don't you tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. If this is true, I need to go sit down. I can't be telling you anything, anything anymore. I should be sitting down because I'll be honest with you, there is sin in my life. I'm not proud of it. I don't, I don't even intend to do it. Sometimes it's something that I do. Sometimes I, I don't even know that I do it. And I shouldn't be saying anything. But the funny thing is, you can't tell me anything. So I'm not gonna sit down. Well, now we're caught kind of in a pickle, aren't we? <laughs> What's gonna happen? That's not what this verse is saying at all. Remember, the context is key here. Jesus is in a court proceeding. This is a court case. He's simply acting as judge. What he's making is a, is a statement of qualification. If you all want to stay here and serve as jury, if you also want to stay here and act as judge, I'll let you, but only if you can pass this one requirement. You are to have no sin. Why? Because the person who provides sentencing, it cannot be a person who is, is guilty or condemned. Like any person, any lawyer will know that the judge is probably the most refined person in the room. If a judge cannot uphold the law, if there's anything wrong with the judge, they excuse the case and they move on or they appeal it all together or he's excused. But Jesus is saying, if you want this case, if you want justice, if you want this to be done well, 
the person who's gonna give the sentencing has to have no sin. You see, the problem is the scribes and the Pharisees came for justice for the woman. They just had no idea that their hearts were on trial too. So Jesus is beginning to show that he's not an impartial judge either. He wrote the law and he's gonna uphold it. It doesn't matter who's in front of him. And then one by one, each man begins to leave the room. And this isn't like a few seconds things. This is a couple of minutes because there's talking about hundreds of men. And I can imagine as these men are leaving all at once, they're just scowling at this woman because they know they've lost. And she's just standing there with her eyes closed, hoping that, hoping that if she just keeps it tight and closed enough, if she makes herself small enough, maybe the sentencing won't be that bad because she's not scot-free here, everyone else just has to leave. So who's left in the room? Jesus and the woman. Jesus is the only one qualified to stay in the room with her. And then what does Jesus say to her? He says, woman or madam, where are they? It's like he's asking her to, hey, open your eyes. Who's left? She's like, No one, Lord. And then he says this in verse 11. Not that. <laughs> he says, no one, Lord. And so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now that word condemn that is used in verse 10 and verse 11 is translated from the Greek word krino, which just means it's used in many different ways, but the way it's being used in this sentence, in these sentences, is saying no one has declared you guilty, have they? No, neither do I. Go, go, and be guilty no more. But wait, hold on. If this is true, if Jesus says go, you're set free, then even though Jesus wrote the law, even though he's upholding it and impartial to the scribes and the Pharisees, he's actually not upholding the law because you can't just let somebody go because when someone breaks the rules, what happens? Somebody has to pay the price, right? If you steal, you have to give what back? The thing that you stole. Somebody has to pay a price. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I don't, I haven't shared this with many people beyond a couple of close uh, guy friends of mine and my wife. <clears throat> they know everything about my life. Um, but I have struggled with sexual sin for most of my life. There are more years of my life where I've struggled with sexual sin than years that I have not. I've worked in multiple churches. I have served on different worship teams. I've, um, I know a ton about the Bible. I went to seminary. Uh, and yet, for all my efforts, sexual sin has held a firm grip over my heart. <clears throat> and it came to, it finally came to head about six years ago when I started working at Mosaic. And I was adamant this is it. Maybe you might understand this feeling. You're like, that's it. It's a new year. The sin is gone. It's done. And I, and I said, I, I, I don't care how much I have to struggle through this. I'm, I'm, it's not going to dictate my life. And, and just as I said it, 
not too long after, I fell into sin again. And really, the best way to put it is I chose to sin again. But I remember there was one night I had just had enough. And I was going through the routine. All right, Jesus, I'm sorry. But it was like probably the millionth and fourth time that I've done this. And so I figured I've probably cashed in all my get get out of jail free cards. And so like, okay, Jesus probably doesn't want to hear this. Okay, what would he like to hear from me? How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to convince him to forgive and to forget? How am I going to, it's been a lot of time. It's been years. I mean, we're talking about a decade's worth of this being in my life. I mean, like his forgiveness has to like give up at some point, right? So what am I going to do? I was like, I got it. Jesus, I'm not going to, don't worry. I'm not here to ask anything. I messed up. I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. I know, no, no, I know, I know you don't want to hear it. As if he's saying anything at all. He's not, because I'm not letting him. But Jesus, like, don't, don't worry about it. You don't have to forgive me, because I got, I got it. I got how we're going to get through this now. You're just going to punish me. You're just going to punish me. Okay? So I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. I know I've broken the rules. I know there's a millionth and fourth time. So what we're going to do is you're going to punish me. Give me what I've deserved. I know I deserve it. So let me have it. And you know what Jesus said to me? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then I said, Jesus, I don't think you understand what I just said. Like, like, I don't, like, do you know what you just said? I don't think, let me just do this again. Punish me. I deserve it. I'm not going to cry about it. Like, I know I get what I deserve. Just give it to me. Go and sin no more. You're not declared guilty here. Okay, I don't think you get it. I'm going to say it one more time, and we're going to be done with this conversation. God, I deserve to be punished. I've broken the rules. Give me what I deserve. And then Jesus, without hesitation, says, go and sin no more. You are not declared guilty. And so what did I do? I got up from my knees. I didn't want to go back to my sin anymore. Now, please hear me. I'm not perfect. I haven't not messed up ever again. And, and, and the reality is, is that the desire to break God's law does secretly loom in the back of my head from time to time. What this means is that Jesus had set me free. Because I thought the only answer to my sin was punishment, and that would fix everything. But Jesus knew that punishment doesn't fix or heal. I thought I wanted punishment, but what I found was forgiveness. But Jesus didn't negate or pretend that my sin didn't exist. Because Jesus is the creator of law and order. He is a God of justice. All evil must be removed. Jesus is worthy of being the judge. He is sinless. He is not swayed. He does not wrongly recite his own law. He does not drag humans around like those worthless animals like the scribes and Pharisees did. But most importantly, Jesus does not look the other way. 
And he did not look the other way when he told me to go and sin no more. He did not break his rules when he looked at the woman and told her to leave, that she had been set free. That same word, that Greek word, krino, that is used here in John is also found in the book of Romans. The apostle Paul, after spending years with Jesus, serving him and serving God's people, came to one final beautiful conclusion. You may have heard it before, and I hope it brings you just as much joy. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no one who in Christ Jesus will ever be declared guilty. And you might be thinking, I don't get this. How can this be possible? Because if you're guilty, someone has to pay the price. How can this be? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul is saying here, there's a law and gospel distinction. The law can point out your sin. The Mosaic law can, can make you pay your life once with it because you've broken the rules. But the gospel of Jesus Christ has come to set you and I free and to give us life. And how does he do this? How does Jesus set you and I free without looking the other way? Because Jesus did not look the other way when he sets the woman free. Because sin required a price to be paid, and the price was death. And if, G and if the woman was to be set free, someone had to pay the price. So who paid the price? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the only judge that would be able to get up from his throne seat, step down the steps, open the defendant's door, ask the woman to kindly get out of the box, go into the box himself, close and lock and seal the door and tell the guilty party, go. I'll pay the price. Jesus, the writer of the law. Jesus, the one worthy of law. Jesus, the perfect judge of the law. This whole time, as we've been reading this text, we've been wanting a perfect judge, someone that will designate justice no matter what because we want things to be done well in this world. So how does Jesus handle your sin? How does Jesus handle my sin? He pays the price and he looks at you and me and says, go and sin no more. You're free. Case is closed but I know there are many of you in this room today whether you are disciples of Jesus or not Satan has been looming around the corner waiting to remind you that no one will want you because you're a lowly disgusting sinner I'm sorry to use that language but that is what he intends to tell you he doesn't sugarcoat it but in fact the problem is that Satan is not the only one, is he? There are loved ones in your lives that tell you that no one will want you. They will sentence you in their hearts and you'll be tempted to walk around this world with a sign around your neck that says dead man walking. And some of you are buried so deep in your own sin and you need to confess it to Christ and you wanna seek accountability from other believers, but you're afraid that they're gonna treat you just as bad as these scribes and Pharisees treated the woman. So you try to hide your pain and try to slow the bloody wounds from seeping out everywhere instead of seeking community, I mean, healing through community. <clears throat> so what are you gonna do? What are you gonna tell Satan? What are you going to tell your family? What are you going to tell the world? Because you are guilty in a, in a way. You have broken the rule. So what do you go say to all of them? 
I love how Charles Spurgeon once said this. He says, I know what the devil will say to you all. He will say to you, and they will say to you, you are, you are a sinner. So what are you going to tell him? You tell him that you know you are, but that you have been set free. He will tell you of the greatness of your sin, and you will tell him of the greatness of Christ. He will tell you that you have mishapped and you have backslidden of your offenses and your wanderings, and you'll tell him and you'll tell yourself that you know all of that, but that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. And while that my sin may be great, my Savior is greater. So may I finish this message with just one thing. May I finish it with the words of Jesus that he extended not just to us tonight, but to the woman 2,000 years ago. Mind you, the woman is no longer known by her sin, but she is known by her Savior. He says this to you and to me. Neither do I declare you guilty. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. God, I deserve to be in that defendant's box. I deserve for the javel to be hit and for my sentencing to be guilty. And yet those words will never be true of me. In fact, the words will never be true of any of us who have placed our faith in you because you have paid the price. You heard the words guilty so that we would never. Your body was stripped of clothes so that we would never be left naked and alone. You were pierced for our transgressions, wounded for our sin. You not only lived the life that we deserved, but you died the death that we did. God, I pray, I pray for everyone in this room that they remember these words, that the words of Jesus will echo and vibrate through all of our being that sin does not have the final say, but you do. Set us free, Jesus. You already have, so help us walk in it. Please, please. We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.